This episode of Edge of Sports is brought to you by Harry's Razors. Go to harrys.com, put in the code EDGE, and you get $5 off your first set of razors. It costs a fraction of the drugstore prices. You're going to buy razors anyway. If you buy them through Harry's and put in the code EDGE, guess what? You're supporting this show. Ford will inbounds it. Bryant's on him. The clock will start when it is touched by someone inbound. Ford sends it to Kareem. Sky hook up and good. Lakers win. Score it. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has given the Los Angeles Lakers a victory. And Magic Johnson is out there celebrating like they just won the NCAA championship. How about how many is out there? We've got Magic Man and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Abdul-Jabbar just throwing a tremendous hook shot. 29 points for the big fella. 103-102. Let's go to Rod right now. All right, great. Great shot. Welcome to a special edition of Edge of Sports, the podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Today we're going to take you inside the beautiful mind of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the NBA's all-time leading scorer who has reinvented himself as a cultural and political critic of the First Order. Now the music we're hearing right now is by Bobby Hutcherson, who as we'll learn is one of Kareem's all-time favorite jazz artists. Today we'll sit with Kareem for the full hour, hear more of his favorite music, and all interlaced with one of the fascinating interviews I've ever had the privilege to do. In recent years, he has become a widely read political commentator, writing columns on Black Lives Matter, Bernie Sanders, and Islamophobia with a unique voice that's sharply literary, gently radical, and deeply humane. Kareem has adopted this persona after being famously tight-lipped about politics for decades. I wanted to understand why he decided to break his silence. Please enjoy our utterly eclectic interview with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Kareem, thank you first of all so much for sitting down. You're welcome. I really do appreciate it. Why did you choose now to start having this persona of, of writing and being very public about your political beliefs? I really uh, kind of backed into it. I just started, I started writing things after I retired. I first did a history book. And um, as things presented themselves to me that I felt mm-hmm. that I should comment on, I, I got more into it and finally um, started to uh, share it with the public. Yeah, it's like these short, sharp, 800, 1,200-word pieces that, and I see people left and right just tweeting them all over the Internet. How, how does that feel to be like, on social media and have people like debating and commenting what you're saying about contemporary politics, not so much history, but like the issues of the moment. Well, I, I think it's, um, everybody has to join in the conversation when we're trying to figure out something that has a uh, you know, huge political significance. And um, you know, we, we have to look forward to what is our country gonna be like in mm-hmm. the next 50 years. And, uh, you know, we're at a point now where it can go uh, any number of ways, uh, a number of which are very good. And let, let's talk about uh, some of those columns and some of that, the politics that you've put forward. I thought your piece on Islamophobia was just incredibly powerful. And you seem like the perfect person to ask this. Like, what, what do you think about the mood in the country right now relative to people of the Muslim faith? I mean, compared to, say, the early 1970s when you converted, changed your name, and all the rest of it? Well, you know, when, when I converted, I, being Muslim more or less went under the radar. Um, unless you were interested in it, you, you didn't care about it. And the only people really who uh, had anything to say 
to me about it were other Muslims or people mm. who uh, are into uh, interfaith activities and were curious. So, you know, for, for the longest time, it, I felt like uh, it was no big thing. And then, of course, we have 9-11. The way things are now, I understand the mood of the country in that their frustration and anger at having to deal with uh, people who consider murder a political statement. Um, this is not uh, what Islam is about. It is not what the U.S. is about. And I understand how Americans want to retaliate. And there's nobody to retaliate against right. unless uh, you want to get on a plane and, fl and, and fly <laughs> to Syria, you know. So it, it's got to be very frustrating. And um, because of that, a lot of the anger is, is focused on Muslims here in America who have really the same feelings of, about this mayhem that's going on as the rest of the country, be they uh, Christian, Jew, or atheist. Uh, mm -hmm. We all abhor what we see going on uh, with ISIL and um, the other radical terrorists who uh, claim that Islam gives them uh, a license to do um, these horrific things. You know, I, I understand how frustrating that is, and. Um, the desire to retaliate, it, it's, it's, it's overwhelming and um, th there's no outlet for it. And uh, I think that's really what's caused a, a number of these uh, incidents here in the country where um, yeah. you have people attacking uh, Sikhs, you know, mm -hmm. people who aren't even Muslim just because these people wear turbans, they think they're Muslim and um, they direct violence at them. And, um, you know, they, they really have no one to vent their frustration on. and. Uh, it's, it's created a lot of uh, turmoil and, and division. Do you agree with the analysis that when people like Donald Trump say things like ban all Muslims from entering the United States, that that actually can make the situation more dangerous? Well, it, it certainly, when you have people saying that any Muslim is fair game to be scrutinized, uh, I can understand that, especially if somebody is trying to enter our country. But to uh, paint all Muslims in the world with a broad brush and mm -hmm. saying that all of us are terrorists because these people in um, what had been Syria and Iraq are murderous uh, terrorists, that's not correct. Uh, it's the wrong way to go about it. And we're really alienating people who can be uh, a big part of the solution. Speaking of uh, Mr. Trump, it's hard to avoid him in almost any conversation. You wrote that terrific piece contrasting Trump and Sanders, uh, and I want to and Bernie Sanders, and I want to ask you about that. But first and foremost, I might, should just ask this: Are do you consider yourself a Bernie Sanders supporter at this point? Well, I, I like Mr. Sanders' approach. Um, he wants to get things done. He sees what the threats are to our way of life. And the fact that uh, people are trying to exploit these issues to get elected and uh, really twisting them around, I don't appreciate that. If we're going to solve this, we have to solve it based on facts and the reality of the people involved. Mm. And I remember in 2008, you supported uh, President Obama when a lot of uh, people, particularly some big NBA personalities, were supporting Hillary Clinton. So are, are you think Sanders more than Hillary is your political cup of tea, if you will? Well, I'm going to let the, uh, the processes uh, run their course, you know, and then we'll, we'll find out what exactly what Hillary has to say and what Mr. Sanders has to say, and then we'll, we'll understand uh, who should get our vote. That's, uh, that's how the process works. I, I think it's, uh, it's a good process. Yeah, but your, your endorsement would obviously be a 
huge deal for Sanders. I mean, it goes without saying. But well, you know, I I worked for Hillary uh, in the State Department. Uh, oh, what did you do with Hillary in I the was, State Department? I was a, a cultural ambassador for her uh, for a couple of months. And where'd you go? Brazil. You went to Brazil. Yeah. Today, Hall of Famer Kareem Abdul-Jabbar kicked off his service as a global cultural ambassador for the U.S. Department of State in Salvador, Brazil. It was very rewarding for me today to talk to the, to the young people about their education because a lot of them did not understand how important it is. So I was happy to uh, remind them that uh, their education will supplement everything that they try to do as athletes and they seem to be uh, open to it. They ask really interesting questions and uh, had, had an open mind, it seemed, uh, to what I was saying. Well, it was interesting. Uh, the people in Brazil thought that democracy was a joke. And then they saw President Obama get elected. A black American got elected. They didn't expect that. Mm -hmm. It changed their attitudes about uh, democracy and the possibilities. So I think, uh, you know, his, his election really has uh, changed uh, the way people look at democracy now because they know that it, it can work under certain circumstances. Of course, uh, in, in many countries, uh, it's a sham, but um, I think the election of President Obama really shows what can happen when uh, freedom of choice and one man, one vote is really upheld by the government. Uh, we, we can have fair elections and uh, elect people who are capable of uh, representing the whole, whole nation. Do you have any uh, disappointments of the Obama era? You see a lot of people trying to assess the last seven years. What did he accomplish? What could he have accomplished? Did it meet your expectations, hope and change? It's kind of hard to blame President Obama for any of, of the failures or disappointments that have come during his administration because the Republicans in Congress have opposed him on every issue, every step of the way. And, uh, you know, you can't blame him for trying to get things done and uh, the opposition that he's had to face and uh, had to try to overcome. Now, I, I got to give you just a, a huge amount of credit as being one of the people who's really gotten under Donald Trump's skin and that scrawled thing he sent you. Um, you wrote your article comparing Trump and Sanders, great article, and he responds with this ugly message written in longhand on, a, on your column, sending it back to you. Uh, what was it like to... I don't know, open your mail and see that he had sent this to you. Well, I, actually, I, I was glad to get uh, his reply because it really confirmed what I had said in, in my article, you know, that he, he is uh, definitely uh, putting his thumb on the scales and, and trying to affect things in a very unnatural and dishonest way. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's what it's all about. He, he hasn't told the truth about anything, um, and he refuses to do so. If you ask him a, a straight question... You get a vague, ambiguous answer. He says, just elect me. I'm wonderful. Mm -hmm. And let's move on to the next question. And, of course, you know, get very little done with, with people to keep their agenda hidden like that. Another one of your columns that went viral, your piece about Ferguson and Black Lives Matter, which was so distinct from what other people had been writing, because you wrote that we have to understand class, not merely race, to understand the anger in Ferguson. Yeah. I would love to know... What informed that opinion? It really wasn't had, had to do with any uh, politics. It's just the practices of the uh, political establishment in those counties or uh, municipalities in St. Louis, where they just basically saw the black community as something that they could exploit uh, mm -hmm. any way they felt like it, and imprison them, kill them, 
the whole judicial process was totally distorted so that black people got convicted and sent mm -hmm. to jail and fined on a regular basis. It, it was very close to uh, Jim Crow discrimination. I think it was. It, it was the equal of it. These people were balancing their budget on the backs of uh, yeah. poor people who were trying to go back and forth to work or take their kids to school. It was really a very ugly thing that had been going on for decades. So uh, by pointing that out, uh, you also saw that uh, the people there who are being exploited that way, they need to wake up and do something about it. And I can't register them to vote. I can't give them the knowledge that they need to elect the people that need to be elected that will put an end to this. This takes uh, caring about it and doing something about it. You just can't wait for someone to come and do it for you. Mm -hmm. I think that was one of the biggest lessons of the Civil Rights Movement, that uh, if we want things done right, uh, we're going to have to pay attention and uh, go over every detail and make sure that uh, we're not being cheated. See, that was really my next question, because you, you are an observer and commentator on the Black Lives Matter movement. You were part of the Black Freedom Struggle, the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s. Can, can you do a compare and contrast for us? Do you see this movement today as an extension of the civil rights movement? Is it distinct? What, what, what do you see? I don't think... Does it, uh, does it inspire you, what's happening today? I, I think uh, this movement today, uh, the Black Lives Matters movement, really is something that evolved from the civil rights movement. A lot of people took the opinion that after the passage of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, it's all over. Uh, and those two acts only gave us the means to fight discrimination and bigotry legally, mm -hmm. but it didn't eliminate discrimination and bigotry. And uh, we have to be constantly uh, vigilant and um, confrontational when we see those things occurring and uh, creating havoc in our lives. We had a lot more work to do after the civil rights uh, movement kind of slowed down. Uh, Dr. King talked about it before he was assassinated. Mm -hmm. And um, the uh, Black Lives Matter uh, movement really has seen this and more or less resurrected the civil rights movement because we, we've got a lot more work to do. Mm -hmm. People in Ferguson have to organize. They have to register to vote and they have to run for office. They have to run for sheriff. They have to run for judges. This is the same thing that's happening throughout the country. And uh, the only way to deal with it is to, uh, is to engage and, and organize. So. Black communities all over the country have to uh, register to vote, and they have to run for elective office and uh, make sure that their voice is heard. You know, every time I interview a current or former NBA player, I always ask if they ever had an experience with the police, the kinds of which that animate the Black Lives Matter movement. And I was, I was wondering that about you because you've been such an iconic figure for so long. A lot of NBA players, you know, they don't necessarily get recognized by the police. They just see a black man in a fancy car. They get pulled over. They get harassed. Has anything like that ever happened to you? Often. Driving on the Jersey Turnpike is, uh -oh. great, is a great place for it to the happen notorious to Jersey Turnpike. The notorious Jersey. I got stopped there, you know, four or five times. Like when you were 18 years old? Or no, like no. I was in my 20s uh, driving to D.C. So when you were legitimately Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, yeah. you're getting stopped. So fame was not a, a shield for you. It's, it's not a shield for anybody. It wasn't the police weren't like, oh, you're Kareem, and they walked away. No, uh, they wanted to know uh, where I was going and uh, what do you have in the car, mm. that type of thing. Uh, 
opened my trunk, showed him my license and registration. I fortunately did not uh, have anything uh, on me that uh, was going to get me in trouble, but um, it, it certainly happened. It was such a media event when you said you were going to UCLA. I mean, really the first of its kind. Now it's very common, like the, the high school star says where they're going to college and all the cameras come. I think you really started that practice in many respects. But it also took place about three months after the assassination of Malcolm X, which is kind of in your neighborhood. Were you aware at the time about Malcolm's assassination? And Very much so. Actually, I, I had ambitions to hear him speak. I never got to hear him speak. Did you Did you ever see him on the streets of? Never Hall? saw him. Um, wow. I know his daughter Atala. She's she's a friend, and uh, she's kind enough to talk to me about her dad and stuff. Mm. But uh, I, I never got to see him um, in person. But it was weighing on your mind while you were also getting pulled in this other direction about where are you going to go to college and all the rest of it. Yeah, there's a whole lot. Uh, pretty complicated choice then, but uh, for me, I didn't like. Debated and debated. It, it right. was very easy. I, I didn't want to go to school in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just cut that area out. I only got recruited by, I think, one school, University of Houston. They wanted me. Wow, you and, and Elvin Hayes. I didn't know that. Yeah, the, I got a letter from um, LBJ, actually. What? <laughs> yeah, about the University of Houston. So you got a letter from LBJ to go to Houston and a letter from Jackie Robinson to go to UCLA. Jackie Robinson and Ralph Bunch. Wow. Yeah. Wake Forest uh, recruited me. Okay. They, they wanted me to go to school there. But, you know, I, I didn't want to be involved in any of that. A good friend of mine, um, Charlie Scott. Uh, sure, North Carolina. Up, uh, he integrated North Carolina. And um, that changed wa- a lot while I was in college. But uh, I, I, I just didn't want to, you know, deal with it. UCLA decided that they wanted to be a diverse place in the 1930s, and they mm. just made it a diverse place. And, right. Uh, they didn't have any problem with it. It's, it they have an incredible uh, history there mm-hmm. when you go and uh, check it out because they had blacks and Native Americans and a lot of Jewish people who mm-hmm. had been discriminated against because they might be communists. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were called lefties and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And they, they were given our opportunities to teach and uh, publish. So UCLA was a pretty progressive place uh, at a time when uh, yeah, not everybody really was... Uh, aware of it. Okay, we're going to go back to that Kareem interview in just 59 seconds, but first, a quick word from Harry's Razors. Now, when I woke up on the day of this interview, I had to go with a clean shave. When we were all set and ready to go, Kareem's manager had him shape up the goatee a little for the camera. If, like me, you need to shave every day, you need to try out Harry's Razors. No one matches the quality. These are German-engineered five-blade cartridges. You get a close, comfortable shave with no cuts or burns. The quality is absolutely guaranteed, and you'll always get a refund if you're not happy. Whether it's on your face or you can shave the head so it looks as beautiful as Telly Savalas or, hey, a 42-year-old Kareem Abdul-Jabbar who is as clean on that dome as anybody who ever played in this league just go to harrys.com put in the code edge you get five dollars off your first purchase it makes no sense whatsoever to pay thirty dollars for an eight pack of blades when you can get them for half the price at harrys.com and i just want to say this again you go to harrys you're supporting edge of sports it means we can do more interviews like the one we're doing with kareem go to harrys.com put in the code edge get those razors today But let's get back to the show. Picture this. 
the Mount Rushmore of political athletes. A lot of debate of who would be on that Mount Rushmore. Most people, though, would definitely have Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell, and Jim Brown somewhere in the conversation. Imagine a table with all three of them behind it and one 20-year-old kid named Lou Alcindor. Lou Alcindor went on to become Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. They all came together for an event that's become known as the Ali Summit, where a group of the most prominent black athletes in the United States came together to support Muhammad Ali and his decision to resist the Vietnam War. You know, Kareem has very rarely spoken publicly about what was going through his head as a 20-year-old behind that table, about what possibly could have been going through his head to be with these luminaries to take such an important stand. Let's hear what Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had to say about the Ali Summit, which just hit its 50th anniversary. I was very flattered that I got invited, and I'd known Bill Russell since I was uh, 14 years old. And I'd admired him, and I'd uh, really learned a lot from him as to how to present yourself when you want to um, deal with uh, some of these issues. You, you can't be angry. Uh, you have to be focused. Uh, it can't just be about your own personal anger. So Bill Russell was a great role model in that sense uh, in confronting uh, the reality of uh, Jim Crow racism. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I was just happy to, to be invited. I got to meet... Uh, some of my sports heroes and um, take part in it. I was told that they wanted me there because the youth of America, black youth, needed someone that uh, mm-hmm. more or less represented their point of view. Was Jim Brown an inspiration as well? Was oh, absolutely. And Jim Brown at that point was al- already thinking about uh, economic issues uh, in the black community, uh, business being a crucial aspect of black liberation. Mm-hmm. You didn't feel intimidated. I mean, you think about the cultural capital of people like Jim Brown and Muhammad Ali and Bill Russell. You weren't, didn't feel any intimidation or butterflies? No, I, I didn't feel any butterflies. I, I probably should have. I was going to say. <laughs> but uh, I, I felt like I belonged there. Do you remember how quickly you decided when they asked you? Did you have any trepidation? No, no, I didn't. I, I wanted to go. I was curious. I, I wanted to go. Were you and Muhammad Ali ever close? Yeah, we were friends. We are friends. Uh, it's been very tough these past couple sure. of decades now that he's you know lost his power of speech and everything. But when he sees me, he uh, acknowledges me, you know, just in whatever way he can. You know what? What's interesting is uh, one of the things that was used to throw Ali off his game is people would call him Clay in the ring. Uh, did anyone ever call you Al Cinder to try to mess with you on the court? No, some people do to this day uh, because they they still wow. relate. To that, but uh, you know, I I just try to correct them and get off of that subject. It, it's not something that I'm going to lose my temper over. Sure. Now, I, I told you before uh, I did a book with John Carlos, one of the '68 Olympians. I did his memoir with him, and there's always this story about you in the '68 Olympics that you were acceding to the boycott, and that's why you didn't go and be part of that team. Is that the reason why? Because of the Olympic Project for Human Rights? My real motivation for not going to the Olympics had to do with the fact that I had a very good job in New York City working for the housing authority, doing basketball clinics and telling kids to stay in school and go to college. And it paid me well, and I wanted to save that money and finish out my senior year at UCLA and and graduate on time, which I did. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't have done that if I had gone to the Olympics. I really want to talk to you about, like, this intersection of sports and politics, because... I mean, you talked about being in Brazil, and when, when I was there, 
um, so many people were so upset because they love soccer so much but felt like the World Cup was being used and exploited by people in power to do things like take their land and, and accomplish all of these political goals that were just exploiting their love. What do you think about the uses of sports in our society? Like, can it be, and we know it can be a platform for social justice, but is it, is it a positive or a negative when you look at the ledger sheet? Well, when you look at the ledger sheet, uh, sports is all over the place. It, it has enabled Americans to get it in their head that bigotry is, is not a, a cool thing. Jackie Robinson's trials and tribulations really helped Americans understand what it was all about. Uh, Jackie, in some of the things that he wrote, said he, he knew that he had done something good when the white players on the Dodgers realized what was going on and they didn't like it. Because mm -hmm. they you know, said, you pick it on somebody who can't fight back, which is really the basis of uh, what racism in America is all about. Mm -hmm. He saw that the change in their attitudes, and um, he, he realized that uh, it was worth it. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I've seen some of the statements that Rachel has made yeah. uh, about how uh, they realized that, that they were winning, even uh, with all the bigotry that he had to, had to experience, they were winning. And uh, that, to me, really uh, enabled me to accept that uh, approach because, you know, when I was younger, uh, you know, se 16 and 17, I wanted to fight back. And sometimes the best way to fight back is nonviolence. And, you know, I, I, I didn't understand that until uh, much later in my life, but I accepted it. Just recently, when they had the 50th uh, anniversary of the crossing of the Edmund Pettus Bridge and hearing a... Uh, John Lewis's statements about what he went through um, the morning preparing to go and w walk across that bridge. Wow, it, you know, it yeah. makes me choke up now. And to have that kind of courage and dedication in, in such a young man, um, he's a real hero. We were beaten, tear gas. Some of us was left bloody right here on this bridge. Seventeen of us were hospitalized that day. But we never became bitter or hostile. We kept believing that the truth we stood for would have the final sad. Do you speak with John Lewis? Have you spoken with him uh, I have spoken with him. I, I've met him uh, since in, in the past couple of years. I've met him and uh, thanked him mm -hmm. for, for what he did. You see the scar on his head? See the scar on his head, and uh, just just hearing his words about uh, he had his Bible in one pocket and a sandwich mm -hmm. in the other pocket, and uh, just hoped that he would make it. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you you honor his work. Uh, the the sports and politics issue it really did flare up this past year. With you probably saw the Missouri football players basically went on strike right. against racism, and it deposed the school president because they were going to lose a million dollars a week if the football team didn't take the field. Right. Um, what do you think about uh, players using sports in that manner, like really trying to use it as a platform? They use sports and they use economic leverage, and uh, sometimes you have to do that. Uh, the city of uh, Montgomery, Alabama, did not want to integrate the bus lines, but uh, when blacks stopped using them, blacks were the majority users of the uh, municipal bus lines there. Mm -hmm. And they finally realized that uh, if black people didn't ride, it would go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And they had to give up their uh, ideals of uh, segregating uh, public transit. 
it takes sometimes economic pressure and uh, just the reality of it's not fair and it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, until you can uh, get people to see that, you've got to keep fighting. There were people recently calling upon LeBron James and members of the Cavaliers to exercise economic pressure on the city of Cleveland after the grand jury wouldn't indict a police officer for killing a 12-year-old kid, Tamir Rice. No. Is that the sort of thing that you think athletes should do as well? Well, I, I, I got a lot of respect for uh, LeBron because um, he, he doesn't turn a blind eye to what's going on around him. He had, I can't breathe, uh, on his warm-up uh, sure. shirt. And then there were a couple of guys from the Cleveland Browns who realized that their kids could end up just like Tamir Rice, and they said something about it. And, you know, mm -hmm. that, that's what it takes. It, you, they don't have to go out of their way. But uh, when it makes sense and uh, they have uh, a, a platform. It's just so interesting that we're, we're living in this time. Because I remember writing about these sports and politics issues 10 years ago, and people talked about it as if it was a 1960s thing. And now it's back in the news all the time. It's like the ghosts of the past coming forward and inspiring a new generation of athletes. But really, um, what was the saying? The past isn't even past. Yeah, Faulkner said that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, it's just uh, something that happened before everything that, that's happened now. But uh, mm -hmm. it's something we need to pay attention to because we can't keep repeating this. And sports is such a powerful teaching tool. But I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the role of sports in, in the black community today. Do you see it positive, negative, somewhere in between? If you could wave a magic wand about the influence of sports, what would you say? Well, I, I think that sports has given a lot of uh, young black athletes an opportunity to better their lives. And in those families where education is valued and seen as a, a positive, getting an opportunity to go someplace and go to college for free and uh, nail down a, a degree, mm -hmm. that does something for your family, it does something for you. So, you know, for the, for the most part, I think sports has, has been a positive. A lot of black athletes are still being exploited but, uh, you know, so are a lot of white athletes. The exploitation is, is uh, part of the, the whole... Uh, NCAA. The whole uh, scenario, but uh, <laughs> we, we have to fix that. Uh, we, we have a lot of work to do. So what would John Wooden's salary be today if he was coaching in the NCAA? Jeez, uh, I don't <laughs> think they could pay him enough. Right. It's unbelievable looking at some of these salaries right now. Right. I mean, And, that, and that's really what it's come down to now. Um, they're not educating the athletes all the time. So any any uh, school or athletic program that has uh, a high education rate, I, I always tip my hat to them because uh, they're doing the right thing. You, you wrote that terrific long-form piece about the NCAA in, in Jacobin. I did want to ask, first and foremost, if you were in charge of the NCAA, which probably sounds like a horrific job, but what, what would you do? Geez, I'd, it's not a horrific job. They get guy who runs the NC2A gets paid over yeah, two, a yeah, that, In that respect, it's a great job. Yeah, $2 million a, dollars job. a year, yeah. But uh, I, I would just try to set up a situation where we could pay the athletes and uh, just get past that and move on. One of the things that I find so fascinating about your just life story is your friendship with Bruce Lee, only because his legend grows every single year, and the number of people who really knew him and counted him as friends, they're not... They don't, they don't speak about it that much. And so what was the basis of your friendship and what was it about him? Like the pictures of you guys together, you look happy and you look at ease and you're smiling. 
what was it about each other that, that you think you found that common ground with a guy, a five foot, seven inch Asian dude? I mean, how did you find Bruce that was connection? Bruce was a very do down to earth person and he understood what racism was about. Mm -hmm. He had to deal with it. He had to take a secondary role because he was Chinese. He had a TV movie all lined up and they told him, Chinese don't make good heroes here in America. We're going to have David Carradine play the lead role. Mm. And he, he said, that's fine. I got to get out of here. The racism is going to be an impediment to my career. And within two years, he had hooked up with the people in Hong Kong and started making great movies that uh, proved a lie to uh, what everybody was saying about the Asians could not make great heroes. Bruce knew what was going on. and. Um, he did not have a bias. The, the martial arts, especially at the time when Bruce was becoming popular, they were very tradition-bound. Yeah. Meaning that if you studied, let's say, a, a Korean style, if you studied that style, that's the only style that you could ever support and everything else stunk and was ineffective. Bruce said, no, you can learn from all different types of styles and uh, you have to be eclectic and take what's valuable to you to your uh, knowledge and uh, athletic uh, abilities and use those things. Very pragmatic, practical, and uh, unbiased uh, assessment of, of how to learn uh, martial arts. That, that uh, really uh, seemed to blow people's minds, especially the traditional martial artists who wanted it to remain a tradition bound. I'm the sensei, I'm the sifu, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm gonna teach and every, no one else knows anything. And he, he proved, proved that uh, proved the lie of that, and um, laughed about it, and democratized it. All uh, right, and now uh, you, we have mixed martial arts mm -hmm. where people uh, more or less train in a way that, that Bruce trained. That that was a pretty amazing thing to see that evolve even after he was dead. Now I've read about how when you sparred with him, you actually did give him trouble because of your reach. He called you what was it, the octopus? He said it was like fighting an octopus. My arms were so long, he couldn't he couldn't get through them and stuff. If you wanted to fight with Bruce, though, you'd have to, like, try to tackle him. And he was so <laughs> quick, you know, and he moved around like a rabbit. He, he could set you up just with his movement. Uh, Very uh, interesting. Um, I loved the Mycroft Holmes book that you did. Oh, That's thank a, you. I really did. And I, I'm part of them. I'm a Holmes guy. Now, for our, li for our listeners who don't know this, you know, Mycroft, he's... His character, and just correct me if I'm wrong on this, he's smarter than Holmes, but he lacks kind of the motivation to do what Sherlock does, and he's a just a diehard cynic. What attracts you to Mycroft Holmes as a character? Well, what really motivated me to use Mycroft the way I did was the fact that when Arthur Conan Doyle writes about him, he is this cynical person who has become a recluse. Right. And uh, is very limited in what he does. He, he goes to his offices at his job, he goes to his club, and he goes to his apartment, and that's it. <laughs> he doesn't want to hear or s see anything else, yet he has the reins of the, the government in his hands right. when he troubleshoots for uh, Queen Vic. So, uh, you know, how I did he it. get to that point from being a young man? So, doing our novel, we look at him as a young man, looking forward to uh, having a wonderful life as a, as a proper English gentleman, mm -hmm. and... Uh, we show how uh, life happens to you and uh, things change. Yeah, was, was it a joy to write? I mean, you're, you're kind of light enough just talking about Mycroft. It was, it was fun to, to write it because people never thought of it that way. And people always thought of Victorian England as only being London, England. 
-hmm. And Victorian England uh, was around the world, everywhere the British Empire was. It was all part of Victorian England. And to connect the uh, colonies with the home country the way I did it in, in the story gave people a totally different way of looking at the British Empire and the colonial experience. Now, I'm a huge fan of uh, Robert B. Parker and the Spencer books. Is there any chance you would do some Hawk fan fiction? I wish I could. Um, Please do. Uh, I, of course, you know, Avery Brooks has certainly solidified that character in, in my mind. And I, I've read all of uh, Mr. Parker's novels. I got to meet him. You got to meet Robert Parker? Yeah, at the, at the uh, National Book Fair in 2004. Wow. I got to meet him. But it, it was better than that for me. We were playing the Celtics in 1985. And, you know, I, I would read books before games just to uh, keep my mind off of things and focus. And, you know, I was reading one of his novels. The sports writers from Boston took note of it and wrote about it. <laughs> About two or three weeks after the playoffs are over, 1985, I get a big box at my office. It's from Robert Parker, and he sent all of the books that he had published up to that point. Oh, man. With a letter saying, uh, thanks for your attention. Hope you enjoy enjoy it all. I do have a couple of listener questions. They, they fascinated me, and I, I know they okay. want to ask you this. Raphael Cohen, he said, I'm a huge fan of Gil Scott Heron. I understand that Kareem had some connection to Gil Scott. Can you speak about Gil Scott Heron, who he was, his music, and what he meant to you? She's Gil Scott, I, I, I see Gil as really the father of the uh, hip-hop, the spoken word with musical backbeat. And uh, Gil was just a, a champion for black culture. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Mendel Rivers to eat hog maws confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised. Will not be televised. Not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. His wife and I went to UCLA together. I knew her really well, and when they got married, I, you know, did I was you introduce a, them? Or did I you? didn't introduce them. I was best man at their wedding. Oh wow! And I, you know, I when I go to DC, I, I would stay with them sometimes. You know, we we were friends. Gil had worked in my housing project when I was like a kid. He worked at the Dykeman houses, one of the custodial people, because he lived right across the river, uh, right at the end of where Fordham Road ends. Right. So he, he could walk over the bridge. And so he used to see me playing when I was still in grade school. And uh, he mentioned that to me. And I'm like, how'd you know about that? And then he, yeah. he told me the, the whole history. So, you know, he, he was aware of me before I was aware of him. But uh, just his uh, ability to uh, link the poetry with the music and what was really happening in the black community was extraordinary. Many suggestions and documents written Many directions for the aid that was given They gave us 
every time he performed here at, in um, in Los Angeles, I, I would attend. Sometimes they'd let me play congas. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. Wait a minute. You played congas when Gil Scott would play live music? Yeah, here at the at the Roxy. Wow. He performed at the Roxy. I, I think once or twice I, I played congas. It was real easy. It's not. It wasn't difficult. found the same kind of uh, friendship and camaraderie based around what we did, you know, mm -hmm. being on the road all the time. There was one set of lyrics he wrote. He didn't know if it was sometime early this morning or sometime late last night. I said, that's, yeah, that's on the road when th those things happen to you on yeah. the road. I know I'm sounding crazy, but I swear that I'm all right. Does it happen sometimes early this morning? And was that sometimes late last night? I'm going home. And we, we just, uh, there was so much in common uh, that, that we had. And then, um, you know, at the end of his life, it was so sad. I, I, it was hard for me to, to deal with him because, uh, you know, I, I knew that he wasn't taking care of himself. Right. And um, his daughter... She was upset about it. Brenda was upset about it, his, his wife. Uh, but he, he just, uh, you know, the drugs got to him in a way that uh, really threw him off, off his track. And his contribution so underrated to yeah. this day. Yeah, and you know, all, all people want to talk about is, you know, the negative aspects of it. But uh, no. he, he was a brilliant uh, artist, and uh, he, he meant a lot. Okay, Darren Wood uh, wants to know, what is the best jazz album you own that speaks to you politically in politically. your collection and why? The one that you politically vibe off like nothing else uh, in your jazz collection. Now, Bobby Hutcherson. Now. Folks all over the world are talking about freedom right now. Gene McDaniels does the vocals. Folks all over the world are talking about freedom right now. Garby, Martin, Malcolm. Lies are wearing so thin that we can see through them now. Freedom wow. now. Brian Brown Walker uh, wants to know, at what point in your career did you begin practicing yoga? He says, I recall reading that it attributed to your longevity to some degree, and do you still practice yoga? I still practice a little bit of yoga. I actually started doing yoga meditation when I was in high school. One of the kids on the uh, cross-country team had a book on it. I started doing yoga meditation. Mm. And then when I got traded to the Lakers, I got to know uh, Bikram Chaudhary. And I started uh, Bikram Yoga and uh, studied with him for a while. And it, it really helped me retire when I wanted to retire. Bikram had uh, been a weightlifter, see, in 1960, 
three World Games, and in the 1964 Olympics, I think he was on the Indian weightlifting team. Yeah. But uh, hot yoga is pretty intense. Yeah. Uh, uh, Mich- Michelle Ballinger has a question that actually relates to uh, something you said earlier. She said uh, the generation of folks like John Lewis are not getting younger, and do you feel confident in this younger generation that they can carry the torch of pe- from people like John Lewis and like yourself? Certainly, politically, there are people who are ready to, to step in and you know, feel carry. good about what's out there. Well, there are people who care, and that's all that counts. You, you got you have to care, and the situations really determine what opportunities you get to, to act on what you care about. But the fact that people care that that's uh, that's very mm. important. Don Brown wants to know, and I'm only asking you this because I got ten variations of this. Uh, did Murdoch have the fish? Murdoch definitely had the fish. Okay, not even a question. No question. <laughs> it wasn't because he was so mad at that kid, just something. Oh, no. no, no. Okay. <laughs> you know, I met that kid, that kid's no. wife about four or five years ago at the airport. He, you know, he's like 40 years old. Yeah. <laughs> so I met his wife. She said, you know, you're my husband. I said, what? He said, the kid in the, <laughs> in the airplane movie. It's funny how many years have passed. It's just been 35 years. Mm. And if you could have dinner with anybody in the history of sports, who would it be? Hmm. I would love to have talked to Joe Lewis. I had a chance to talk to Lana Turner. What? Lana Turner went out with Joe Lewis. He wrote about it in his autobiography. So I, I met Lana's daughter through real estate. She, she's a real estate broker. And I asked her about it. She said, I don't know. Here, I'm mm. going to call her because she's a Laker fan. You can ask her. So mm. she called her mom, and I sat there and, and talked to her. I said, listen, you know, Joe Lewis wrote about the fact that you were his girlfriend in his, in his biography. She said, oh, yeah, he was, he was a lovely man. He was, <laughs> he was very nice to me and my daughter. And, you know, that blew my mind because, you know, so I, I know Joe probably had a whole lot more stories like that. Wow. And, and if you could have dinner with uh, 18-year-old Lou Alcindor, what would you say to him? Remember to wear your helmet. So, it's <laughs> a whole lot coming up. Wow. Ah, Kareem, it was worth the 30-year wait. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Really no problem. appreciate it. So that's our hour with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I got to say, that was one of the most interesting, eclectic, incredible interviews I'd ever been a part of. And I feel like I finally understand why James Worthy, his Hall of Fame teammate, called Kareem, quote, a different kind of cat. I think what it comes down to, and I think you hear it in the interview, is that as sublimely gifted as Kareem was with a basketball, This is someone who was pretty much drafted to play as a small kid because of his incredible height. I think if Kareem had been born to be 5'10", he would have been a New York City librarian, content amidst the stacks of books and fulfilled by showing that one troubled kid how to find joy in the written word. 
Librarian Kareem would also have written crime thrillers with a social justice bent after work as a hobby. He would have written online editorials about New York's need to invest in public education and seek racial justice with stinging, literary, and unobvious turns of phrase. In other words, he would have been who he is now at 68, only he would have started a hell of a lot sooner. When the interview was over, I asked Kareem to sign my near 30-year-old fraying, dog-eared copy of Kareem's now-out-of-print memoir, Giant Steps. And inside he wrote, I hope you can continue to enjoy what's left of this book. I will, and I won't be alone because the book on Kareem is still being written. So on behalf of the entire team, I just want to thank Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Kareem's writing appears frequently in Time, among other publications, and he's currently compiling and updating a book of his columns, some of which we talked about today. He's also the subject of an excellent HBO documentary, A Minority of One, that's available now. We'll have a link to the film and more links to Kareem at edgeofsportspodcast.com. We're also thrilled to report that there's video of this interview, and we'll be posting it on our website and thenation.com soon. Follow Kareem on Twitter at KAJ33. Find me at Edge of Sports, and you can always email the show at edgeofsports at slate.com. Special thanks to Thirsty Tiger TV, Valerie Chow, Angie, Alessandro, Wayne, Scott, and Tim. Also to Brendan and Andy from Panoply, Frank Reynolds at The Nation, and Kareem's team, Deborah Morales, Audie, and Janice. Learn more about all things Kareem at KareemAbdulJabbar.com. Music in this episode was by Bobby Hutcherson, Gil Scott Heron, and Ibrahim Malouf. Find their links in the description of this podcast. The producer of Edge of Sports is Dan Bloom. Thanks again to Kareem. But most of all, thanks to you guys, the listeners. Please share the show. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're learning so much along the way. It's an incredible journey, and we're just getting started. We'll talk to you next week. We are out of here. Peace. Peace.